well, folks. This is Big Ed Hurley, and you're listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Whoa, Nelly. Coming Sunday, April 8th. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. The Los Angeles Times says Twin Peaks is certainly like nothing else on television. W.C. Fields would say I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. The Washington Post calls it unprecedented. This you gotta see. Bobby, did you kill Laura Palmer? Sunday, April 8th, from David Lynch, Twin Peaks. Can you remember... Laura! She'd been murdered. She was the one. I'll see you in my dream. A policeman's dream. Goes around, comes around. Round and around. Diane, it's the same thing. I told you I had a feeling you'd see this again. All right, this is our first community rewatch. We're going to focus on the pilot, and we've got a few people here. Our panel. Hey, this is Joel Bacco from LostInTheMovies.com. I made the Journey Through Twin Peaks videos, along with lots of other Twin Peaks content. This is John Thorne. A long time ago, I produced a magazine called Wrapped in Plastic, which was all about Twin Peaks and David Lynch. And I'm currently doing a new magazine about Twin Peaks and David Lynch called The Blue Rose. Hi, J.C. Hotchkiss. I'm an editor and writer for 25 Years Later and also the co-founder of The Bookhouse Babes. So we are focused on the pilot, and I want to start with Joel. Joel, you know, in the pilot, so much of what we think of as Twin Peaks wasn't even there yet. Do you want to kind of elaborate on that? You're seeing, like, an original conception of Twin Peaks, which, when you take a step back and look at it, is actually kind of fundamentally different in a lot of ways from what we know Twin Peaks became, even before season three kind of took it to a whole other level. You know, for example, there's really nothing supernatural in it at all. It feels much more like naturalistic to me in a way, like there are exaggerated elements and, you know, it's a Lynch thing. There's obviously going to be some sort of stylized elements. I don't know if it's just the location shooting or the way that he directs the performances. It just feels like a more like grounded show than some of the later episodes. John, you mentioned, I think, in Wrapped in Plastic and in your book, The Essential Wrapped in Plastic, this is kind of like the establishing phase of Twin Peaks. Like you're kind of getting, maybe you can elaborate on that, but it's really kind of focused, These this pilot and the first episode and the second episode is kind of like the first phase of of establishing the show. And, you know, I think we can credit maybe Mark Frost's uh, presence here for why the show is the way it is, particularly in the pilot in the first two hour long episode. It really is much more of a murder mystery. It's very forensic. It's very grounded. Obviously, it's also about a small town and it is commenting on soap opera, soap opera structure. And so it's got that going on in it. It's not until we get to the David Lynch directed third or second hour long episode. Uh, after that, it takes on a different feel to it. Speaking specifically about the pilot, obviously, as Joel mentioned, they were shooting it on location. They had this pilot, which was really going to be the first stepping stone in a path. They had in mind that the story would open up into something else. I don't think they knew exactly what from there, yeah. but it really is sort of that fundamental starting place. And it, it's very grounded. And JC, you've rewatched this for the show. What insight did you see from kind of rewatching it? Yeah, it's funny. I, I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago, even before you decided to, to do this project. And I even tweeted about it because by far the pilot to me is like television at its best as a whole. It just had all the elements of what made a great show back then and still to this day holds up pretty well, I, I think. I agree with John. I think Mark had a lot to do with this because the the humor, like watching, re-watching it again, there was humor that I didn't catch the first time. A lot had to do with like Cooper's nuances with like, I'll bring up the scene where him and Harry go in the elevator and they see Dr. Jacoby and just Kyle's facial expressions and the, and the acting it was just a great comedic moment. So it, it, I think it had all the elements of it had the soapal elements that John spoke of, like the old dynasty Dallas, you know, you had the, the love affair with, with Josie and you had the intrigue with Catherine and you had, and you, this was all set up perfectly in the pilot. 
it's incredible television. And I agree with Joel. It's, it's set up Twin Peaks to kind of follow a formula, but then they kind of went off the rails with Lynch and it was still perfect. I think the pilot is one of the most perfect pieces of television I've ever watched. I like to imagine now when I watch the pilot sometimes like what the alternate like universe Twin Peaks is. Um, and also, like, if there's, you know, some sort of alternate universe where there's only the pilot, like ABC was like, nah, no, thanks, guys. Yeah. And it just leaves off there. Like, how would we think about Twin Peaks? What would it be? Sense yeah. of, like, unknowability, like this idea that, like, this mysterious girl died. There's all these irreconcilable things about her and we'll never know. We'll just never know what happened in this small town. And And I think Lynch loves that. And he always... It's weird in interviews. He always goes back and is like, "The pilot's the thing." The pilot's like, "Really? Like all the stuff that we think of as you bringing to Twin Peaks isn't in the pilot? Like the red room's not in the pilot. There's no Bob other than getting caught in the mirror." But I think a the creative process of of making it to him is still where like the emotion of making Twin Peaks is rooted. And I think b he loves that idea of the openness and everything after that, I think is going to be a little bit of a disappointment to him because he has to come through with something. Even if he avoids answers, you're still bringing something more to a situation that was just completely open and like never resolvable. Joel, you say that the red room wasn't part of the pilot, but if you think of it, the, uh, international. the right. international European version, he did actually film the, the red room with the pilot and we yes. did have a conclusion that Bob was the killer. And then Mike goes and kills him. You wonder if that's in his brain when he thinks about as the part of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, he thinks that he shot wild at heart during season two. So who knows? That did not happen. It absolutely did not happen. And that we can never say that enough because exactly. they'll always get repeated, including by him. <laughs> I want to just say I agree completely with JC. It, it, I still think the pilot's one of my favorite pieces of the entire Twin Peaks narrative yeah. all the way through yeah. season three. And I think um, the reason why Lynch, to go back to what Joel was saying, the reason why Lynch um, thinks about it the way he does is that it was like filming a movie for him. He went yeah. on location with a script and a cast, and it was a – it was a it was a movie production in his mind, and I think everything he did after that was down the street in L.A. You know, he mm -hmm. jumped in to to do you know episode of here and an episode there, and it didn't have the same magic to him as it did going on location to shoot the pilot. So, John, you know, I've always loved from Raptor Plastic the unseen Twin Peaks. <laughs> Even when I remember when you were working on your book, I was like, you got to have the unseen Twin Peaks. It's just these deleted scenes, the alternate version of Twin Peaks. And so I feel like we got to have that, in, at least discuss that a little bit. For this community rewatch, we've actually have uh, people acting out some of the part of these deleted scenes. And I, JC, you're part of this. And do you want to share that yeah. some of the cast for this show? I believe it was Twin Peaks. And our our bickering peaks are uh, Lindsay and Aiden and me. <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> I think that was it, right? It was just the four of us. Right. It came out great. Yeah. Father. How is she? She's been asking for you. There's no more pain now, is there? Our thoughts and prayers guide her to her rest. And she is at peace, Sarah, the peace of the just and the good. God, I love the music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that music makes everything sound yes, great, doesn't yes. it? Yes, yes. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I was reading that and looking at the scene as it was, because it's the scene before Harry shows up, too, when she gets sedated by Dr. Hayward. So what Sarah says is interesting in that line. There's not any more pain, is there? Which, if you watch the pilot the way it is, you don't realize that she realizes her daughter was in any pain. But her saying that says a lot more to me than knowing that, you know, she was just, okay, she's prom girl, she dated Bobby, da-da-da-da-da. Mm. There was a deeper meaning there. Yeah. I also didn't think about it that that's happening right when she's getting a shot, so she won't be in any pain, pain. either. So yeah, that's true, too. So that scene has this woman named Janice who is like the next-door neighbor. And actually, Leland, after he finds out from Harry Truman that his daughter is dead and she's on the phone with Sarah, he hangs up with Sarah and then he calls Janice, his neighbor, and says, you should go see Sarah and comfort her. I remember there's always this lady who was holding Sarah's hand on the couch. And then Harry comes I'm by and he has questions. And I think that is Janice. And like, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. And we have 
have Father Clarence, who actually doesn't show up till episode three for the funeral, and he shows up again in episode eighteen, the wedding there, the Dougie wedding. <laughs> yeah, the Dougie. <laughs> a lot of. Isn't it funny to see the mayor in this episode? It's like it's like seeing a character from like a Nickelodeon show like show up in like a primetime mystery or something. Yeah. Like, wait, what are you doing here? You're the you're the funny mayor. It seems so out of place in retrospect, but of course, just watching the pilot, it's like, no, it's just this old mayor in the town. And I think what Mark Frost has said in the past is like, so they're, you know, they're establishing this world, this town, and they're probably like, okay, my father's going to play the doctor. You know, his real life father will play the doctor. And then maybe they're thinking, oh, we also need to have a priest and we need to have a mayor. And they're like probably just thinking all these different people that's just part of the town. Yeah. And they don't know what to do with them, but they have them there. And then maybe down the road, they'll bring him into the show. And a couple things about this scene. It's one of the scenes that we can be fairly certain was actually shot because the credit is there in the end credits for Father Clarence. He is credited in the pilot, but he's not. he doesn't appear in the pilot. The neighbor is credited also. Janice Hogan is credited by the actor Marjorie Nelson. Uh, so that scene was probably a longer scene. And those... Uh, lines that we just heard uh, were probably shot, but then cut more more than likely for time. Well, thanks, John. I mm. should learn from season three that I should always look at the credits and see what, because the credits actually <laughs> reveal a lot, don't yes. they? <laughs> you know what's funny about the credits is Laura is buried under like Biker Joey and then beneath it, Laura. <laughs> like the, yeah. and then like yeah. some like, like a logger or something. Like she's like totally just an afterthought and it. it's really interesting. There, uh, there are things we could talk about that don't have to do with specific scenes, but just have to do with the crafting of the pilot as a whole. Um, uh, you know, characters changed, names and and races. I think they were being somewhat ambitious uh, when they scripted the pilot. They were. Th- envisioning it as being something a little more than what it ended up being. People do know that uh, the Josie Packard character was originally envisioned uh, probably by Lynch uh, to be played by Isabella Rossellini, who's going to play a character named Giovanna Packard. Uh, They would call her Joe, I guess, uh, for short. For whatever reason, Isabella Rossellini could not uh, participate in Twin Peaks, and so um, they were able to get Joan Chen, and then they just, you know, they just changed the character a little bit, but the lines all stayed the same. And, you know, that same thing happened with Ronette Pulaski. I think her name was Sharon Pulaski. Hawk was supposed to be... Bernie, I think. Bernie Hill. And he was an African-American. Yes, that's right. And, you know, I mean, we all love the fact that Michael Horst um, played Hawk, and uh, I would never change that. But there was an effort, at least on the part of Lynch and Frost, to put an African American character into the story. And you know, they never really came back to that. There are very few minority characters in in the ensemble. Yeah. Although it is interesting, there's a lot more uh, black actors in the pilot than in later episodes, hmm. in like smaller parts. The, um, the doctor, Doctor Shelby, I think her name the, is. The doctor, uh, the I think the vice is the vice principal or something at the school. Hmm. I mean, even that's already more than most of the other yeah. episodes. But like, you would see more of an effort at, by the '80s, and obviously a little bit more with each decade of trying to have sort of diverse casts, like more representing how America looks and everything, and. The show kind of gets away from that a little bit when it gets more into like it's on a set and it's almost like the Disneyland Mm -hmm. version of like a small town in a way. And that's Mm -hmm. part of the charm. But that also ends up meaning that they kind of play into some stereotypes a little more at times, I think, if that makes sense. John, I'd love to ask you, you know, in in putting together Wrapped in Plastic, how did you and Craig come up with this idea of this unseen Twin Peaks that you were going to go back to the scripts and maybe discuss that? We had obtained the scripts at a certain point and as we read them we noticed you know sometimes significant scenes uh were written but had never been shown or we don't even know if they were shot uh particularly later in the first season i know you guys will get to it on other episodes but there's subplots with audrey that are you know quite striking uh that they removed and so it just occurred to us well we ought to we ought to feature that i mean that's material a lot of people at that time probably didn't even know about so we ought to talk about it but more than just that talk about why you know why were these scenes deleted um you know or you know rewritten or or in some cases shortened so that they, they weren't as long as as, 
as they were written. And of course, sometimes, and many times, the reason is just simply time. You know, they had 44 minutes they had to fill, and they just couldn't. You know, they 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 scripted too much. And in some cases, of course, uh, the uh, you know, the plot line had changed. They thought, you know, we're not going to pursue that. We're not going to pursue James's mother. We're not going to pursue Audrey's incident with Johnny. And so, yeah, they just went a different direction. So we thought it would be interesting to to examine all that. And it gets into you know, it gets a little bit into TV production and what are the nuts and bolts of making a TV show. When you look at the pilot and you look at the script for the pilot, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I mean, it is a little more ambitious than what they did. They have, for example, Sharon Pulaski, who would be Ronette, uh, stumbling out of the woods uh, when she's first she's first found uh, the morning after the murder. She stumbles out onto a roadway and is almost hit by a logging truck. And if you just think about, I mean, it's written in a few sentences, but if you think about what that would take to shoot, it would it would take. Uh, you know, finding, you know, closing off a roadway, getting a truck, getting maybe a stunt driver and a stunt person and basically choreographing this scene. And I'm sure when they were on location, they were like, you know what, it'd just be a lot easier if you walk across that bridge, and, yeah. you know, and so for economics, for time, it became a little bit more of a television production. Um, I think if Lynch had the time and, and the money that uh, that he might have been used to or or certainly later used to with a a major motion picture he might have been able to manage some of those more ambitious sequences and yet of course that's such a vivid image of her on the bridge it's like oh well, they kind of lucked yeah. out in a way you know yeah um, absolutely it, you know the, there's also in the script that where the laura was killed was in a mountainside cave so they had this whole idea <laughs> oh, of going yeah. in having oh, really? a cave right. but i actually think the train car is more interesting I, yeah. it's just a unique place to have yeah. happen yeah. so but it's interesting where it, maybe was it too difficult to find a cave, a real cave and to shoot in that and I wonder if they just found the train car because it's really there, you know, and they were like, oh, this is where it should happen because they did their little tour through the town and it, they must have taken a lot of inspiration from that, you know. True. I'll bet you when this draft was written that they hadn't seen anything yet, my guess. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, they just said, well, we'll just do it in a cave and they probably, Lynch and Frost were like, and you know, that's that's something we can change when we get up there. We'll, you know, we'll, if we, we can't find something that's that we'll substitute for a cave and we'll find something else. And um, obviously the train car, it's like the Ronette on the bridge. I mean, those, those things are, are more striking than perhaps they would have been had they been, you know, been a cave. Um, Of course they introduced Al cave later in the second season. And that may have been a throwback. They might've been thinking, well, you know, kind of wanted to have a cave and, 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 and they were able to do that when they were down in LA easier than they were when they were on location in Seattle. Well, an idea that fascinates me that I think somebody on Dugpo once brought up, I can't remember who, but they were looking at the pilot and I don't remember if this was like their impression at the time or just going back, but you can see this a lot on alt.tv.twin peaks as well. The Usenet board, there's a sense in which it kind of makes sense for twin peaks to be building toward there being some sort of cult or something in the town. And that that's Laura was somehow a part of this and be, was killed. And it ties into the whole structure of the town. And, you know, the, the, it's like taking that idea of the hidden side of a sunny small town to sort of its extreme, mm-hmm. something like the Wicker Man or something like that. And I think that's interesting because there is a sense, you know, they didn't know who the killer was going to be, not just in the sense of like, oh, there's going to be a townsperson who's possessed and who's that going to be. Frost says there was always a supernatural element to the story. But my guess is that they didn't know what that would be yet. And I think the ritualistic nature of the killing just does make it feel like, okay, she got involved with like not just one person, but like there was like some sort of group effort going on here Mm -hmm. of like what she was involved with. You know, it it seems like initially, I don't think they had anything particular in mind, but like that's almost like what they're kind of building toward in a way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, let's listen to another scene here. So this is uh, Cooper coming into Twin Peaks. Oh, man. Diane, 2.15 in the afternoon, November 14th. Entering town of Twin Peaks. Five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. Forgot to mention, I stopped for coffee in a pit stop around 10.30. Little diner near Bitterroot Lake. Excellent coffee. Forgot to get the receipt. Can you believe it? That was 75 cents and I left a quarter on the counter. Got to find out what kind of trees these are. They're really something. (laughs) 
Cooper gets into Twin Peaks on November 14th at 2.15 in the afternoon. I like the whistle at the end. What <laughs> yeah, was I was whistle? like, probably it was taking me a second to place it. <laughs> yeah, what was, why, it sounds so familiar. It's uh, Rhapsody in uh, Blue. Uh-huh. Rhapsody in Blue, yeah. And Is that in the script? That was in the script. And actually, it was in the script twice, I think. It was when he comes into the town. And then I think when he's hanging out with Harry in the truck, kind of doing their stakeout, uh, he's still whistling the same tune. Mm. So, and we kind of see him whistling here and yeah. there. He's got his flute. And he's just, that's he's whittling, whistling. <laughs> right, yeah. But what would make them even change the time? Well, they did actually shoot in February uh, when they were up, I think, I'm pretty sure when they were shooting the pilot, they were shooting it. Right. Um, it, it was very cold. And I, I know when they went back for Firewalk with me and they went back for season three, Lynch, Lynch we're going to go in September. <laughs> it's the best time of the year. We are not. And they did yeah. for Firewalk with me shoot in September and for season three shoot in late August and September. So it could be that they just changed the date to reflect the actual day or time frame that they were shooting. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Hmm. I think they shot his arrival in Twin Peaks on February 24th. And that's the only reason that that's the day. Like, I think they literally just had him say the day that it was. Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> February 24th, 1989. And it's all of this mythology. It's just because the shooting schedule had him driving into Actually, town on that day. You know, with that clip you played, um, there are those minor changes, you know, the date. And I think he talks about different town and and there's a few other little things but mostly it's the same thing it's the same cooper introduction that we get with with minor differences and of course right after that he's going to go and he's going to meet sheriff dan stedman (laughs) who is not named harry truman that's another name change but it's interesting to think that probably i won't for sure say when they were scripting it and they were calling him Dan Stedman. I mean, person they had in mind originally to play the sheriff. And of course, uh, here in this uh, in this original script, he is uh, Dan Stedman instead of Harry Truman. I guess when I see the name Dan Stedman, I think it's probably Robert Forster, uh, wow. you know, rather than Michael Onkeen. So, but anyway, so that not only did they change the name, they changed the actor too. And I, I don't know if changing the actor caused them to think, you know what, well, let's just give him a different name. I, I, I don't know why they would have changed the name other than you get, you know, get some other references when you call him Harry Truman. Obviously, you have the presidential reference. And then there is a real life Harry Truman that lived near Mount St. Helens, you know, who died up there. And so it could be that they were pulling from the real world when they changed the name. The Dan Stedman, I always think, is Robert Forrest. I'm just wondering how many actors they actually envisioned in these roles as they were scripting it. The log lady, I don't think she was ever even in the script. She wasn't what in the script, but but the log lady was thought of all the way back to Eraserhead. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It seems like there's almost two groups of characters. Like there's the characters that they envisioned as like sort of types within the town and then they figured out who could play them. And then there's like the characters who they really liked an actor who came in for another part and they thought, let's invent something for them to play. Lee, you have her end up headlining the film that comes at the end of all this. Whereas, like I said, she's buried in the end credit. So basically, uh, somebody else pointed this out too, that you know, with all the drama that supposedly happened with Lara Flynn Boyle, it's kind of understandable because when she signed on, it was like Lara Flynn Boyle as the female lead of Twin Peaks or as the young female lead. And then it's like suddenly all these other people who weren't even in the script are suddenly taking over like Sherilyn Finn, Matt Genomic, Cheryl Lee. So it's almost like Donna was sort of supposed to be the sole... Donna and James, kind of the sole mm. like teenage leads, and I guess you know Bobby was more of a villain or whatever. But That's they brought Shelly into it, and they brought all the other people. Well, talking about how actor may have changed the story, why don't we go into the next scene? Cheerleader, homecoming queen, most popular girl in school, friend to many in the community, seventeen years old. Laura Palmer found dead this morning, the victim of violent crime. Mr. Jorgensen, I urge you to reconsider. I want to appeal to your best nature. Best nature? We have best nature at home. No violent crime, crime rate nothing. It is a great injustice to judge our community by this horrible exception to the rule. I have a daughter myself. She's the same age. She goes to the same high school. Everyone here have gone not good. Sir, you are throwing away the investment opportunity of a lifetime. Better that than to throw a lifetime away. <laughs> that was fantastic. 
So the script version, it's actually the TV a reporter there who is basically saying there's been a murder in the town, and that's how, why the business people are leaving. But in the you know the show, it's Audrey who is basically convinced them to leave. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. The, there was supposed to be a media presence throughout the pilot, wasn't there? A absolutely. Uh, yeah, and again, this is when they were thinking of the story as sort of a larger scope. I'm, uh, mm. I'm not quite sure if they had a full grasp of where this little small town was going to be because in the script for the pilot, there's reporters everywhere. It's unlikely that Twin Peaks even has a radio station, let alone a, uh, a TV station, and uh, multiple TV stations were reporters. Obviously, they could have been coming in from somewhere else, but but they're there all of a sudden, and they're there throughout. You get the sense that there's a larger world around Twin Peaks, and that changed a lot. And I think probably the environment of shooting on location up there caused them to think of it as more of a remote spot than it was in the script. And in the pilot, I think the only thing that is of the reporters is Mark Frost, and it's uh, Shelley Johnson. You know, she's watching TV, and yeah, there's talk right. about a murder. JC, you know, you you recorded. I think we're going to get to a scene with you, but there was there's probably about four or five. Yeah of these reporters' coverage of the murder. And it's like, I feel like it's almost like OJ or something. Like, there's like a, a mob of reporters <laughs> covering this. Well, if it, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like, at, at that point, especially in the 80s, that was like huge news. You know, I mean, it's like anytime there was any sort of murder or killing or anything, I mean, literally, if it was a little local podunk town, because, I mean, come on, guys, we lived in Connecticut. If it was like a little, like in Tariffville, you'd have every, Hartford, New Haven, everybody would have a news story about it, and they would send all the reporters to that town. So it's almost like maybe that's the, how they were approaching it was, okay, Twin Peaks proper is in Washington, but there's bigger cities around it, you know? So it's like, it's all the, you know, the news people, the, you know, the, the locusts come because there's a murder of a, you know, prom mm -hmm. queen and, you know, and they, and they inundate the town, you know? So maybe that's how, how they were trying to approach it. But yeah, there was quite a few in the, in the cut that was the reporters. The only thing I'll say about, just real quickly about the scene you just played, as you said, uh, it was Audrey who was more of the, the instigator for the Norwegians to leave. And Audrey's barely in the script, uh, the original script. Uh, so her role uh, increased quite a bit once they, once they were actually up there shooting. I, they must have known why when they cast Sherilyn Fenn, they were, they were going to expand something for her. And uh, that was a major part of you know, her contribution to the pilot. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad Just they her did. charisma in general of, of, you know, in the pilot and how she's sort of elusive when you first see her, when she comes walking out of the, you know, the Great Northern and gets into the car and you, and they focus on her, you know, her Mary Jane saddle shoes and, you know, and then she puts her feet in the car. It was, you could tell there was a setup there that I think that Lynch really loved. The one thing I love about Lynch is the way he loves to like film women walk. It's, it's a thing about a woman's walk and it's and the, Audrey definitely has one of the best that one the scene where she walks into to, to see Cooper in the school it's, it's just it's a thing yeah. but it just I mean I'm glad that they added more of her it definitely took it somewhere so it's, it would have been interesting to see it without it but I, I think it's more with it it made the show better too because in future episodes you then have her father and her going at each other because like oh you're wrecking my business and you're making things hard I wish I never had a daughter so that, <laughs> it, it makes the dynamics between that relationship so much stronger. Well, it's the yin and the yang to Leland losing his daughter and then you have here he has his own daughter and, and yeah. it's it's the inner turmoil and she's troubled too, but it's he doesn't see to help her. You know what I mean? It's kind yeah. of that kind of like mirror image of father-daughter relationships kind of thing. And that makes me think to what you're talking about where they like where they took Audrey, how they built up her character and then the stuff they had her do with Ben. I think and this is something it'll be interesting to hear, you know, I'll, I'll be in some of them, but just to hear in general the community rewatches discuss is how the show evolves because I think all shows do this to a certain extent, but um I think in some ways Twin Peaks might have done it more than a lot of shows, certainly than sh a lot of shows now do where they have more of like a Bible. I know Lynch and Frost kind of say they had a plan and uh, people say, Oh, they showed us this thing of, but I don't know. It just, it feels like so much of it was sort of, they created something and then they thought, now what do we do with this? And right. they found stuff to do with it. So like, that's a good example where it's like, it's interesting to go back and watch the pilot with that in mind and kind of scrape away everything that we associate with it because of what came later mm. and just be like, well, let's think about this now. Like, what if 
Audrey just was something else. Like she just kind of was this manic little schemer and there's no like darker side or more sensitive side there, but they took it in a different interesting direction, but it's like, it could be anything with all of this stuff, you know, with the killer, with Laura, with, with uh, Cooper having an affair with Josie as he was supposed to have originally, Mm -hmm. like, there's just like, it's interesting to watch the pilot and realize there's all of these seeds planted in there, but they can grow different ways. Like they don't have to become what we see. So that kind of takes me back to that earlier idea I was talking about of like watching the pilot sometimes makes me like curious about alternate reality Twin Peaks, which of course we'll get to with (laughs) season three, because Mm -hmm. arguably, you know, maybe we get a little taste of that seen these in pictures before, but there is an actual gazebo right here in your city square. That is beautiful. You know we're going to be late for that meeting. You know, I'm from Philadelphia, and a thing like this, a gazebo in a town square that is so meticulously maintained, look how those hedges are clipped. I'm speaking to you tonight from in front of the town hall of Twin Peaks, where just behind me the city council and chamber of commerce have called an emergency session to discuss the tragic events that have rocked this remote, peaceful community. How will this community react? We'll be here to bring that news to you as soon as it's available to us. Yeah. That was JC. Oh, man. (laughs) That was fun. With Cooper and the whole gazebo, it's like, I mean, he's silly and he's very all shucks and all childish, but a gazebo? Is he really that fascinated with the gazebo? (laughs) There's, There's gazebos where he is from. Uh, <laughs> that scene's actually on the Blu-ray, not the reporter part, but the gazebo part. This is of James and Donna coming into the sheriff's station. Sheriff, is he a suspect? What's his name? Is he being charged? What about the girl? Are they both suspects? Sheriff, what can you tell us? Nothing for you folks at this time. No comment. And so, you know, there, there was nobody there. And in this script, there's like a whole crowd of, of reporters saying, who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> what a different feel that would be to have the the sheriff station swarming with people versus this like very quiet, you know, it's a dark, quiet town. And I agree. A dark, quiet mm-hmm. night in this lonely town. And these two teens are being pulled in. And who really knows what's going on versus like a circus outside. Yeah. Yeah. And you have this moment between James and Donna. They're just looking at each other. And saying, yeah, it's yeah. going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the reporters were probably written into the script it, sort of a, as a crutch, basically, yeah. to heighten the tension, to heighten the whole idea of the the danger that's out there. And there's there's worry and there's stress in the community. And so those reporters sort of function to, to convey that. And, of course, the beautiful thing about Lynch is – he didn't need that crutch at all. He could do it through some ambient noise and dark shadow and a tree blowing in the wind, and you, you're suddenly really spooked. You know, again, when they were scripting it, they probably thought, you know, this this will allow us to keep that stress alive in the viewer. You know, didn't use the reporter because they didn't want to pay for any extras, or maybe Lynch was like, I don't need to use the reporters because <laughs> I can establish that same mood a much different way. And would, yeah. would the reporter have all been Mark Frost? Would it would have been... Uh... That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Cyril Pond. Cyril Pond. It would have all been Cyril, Cyril, Cyril. <laughs> They're editing it and said, we've had enough Mark. We're just going to use him on... The... <laughs> oh. Isn't there a video of that, that news... Uh, real, they were presenting Laura Palmer's death, sort of like a You're big... right, there is. I think you can find it on YouTube. There Ooh. is a whole uh, Mark Frost recordings and stuff. That's I don't, pretty I don't, cool. I feel like it was for season two, though, but... And that probably, <laughs> you know, that speaks to the to the same same thing. I, they needed to do some little reporter bit for the TV that Shelley's watching, and they're not going to hire an extra or another speaking role, so they just had Mark Frost do it. Yeah, they just said, right. Mark, get in front of the camera. We're going to do this real quick because we need that. Um, they weren't about to go find actors or extras for for that. I think that's true, but also the reporters in general and the fact that he plays one just feels like such a Mark Frostian thing because (laughs) I think he's so much more interested in Lynch in like media and just society. I mean, he the difference between Lynch and him to me is he is 
super interested in society and like history and context and how people interact with one another. That to me is, is Mark Frost. The reporters just feel like something that he would have very much had in mind. Like how is the town, you know, reacting to kind of the outside world coming in and how is the outside world see this town and just those various perspectives intersecting in this. And, you know, I always go back to this quote of uh, that Lynch has about writing the goddess which was the first project that he and Mark Frost mm -hmm. worked on about Marilyn Monroe. Lynch says, I was fascinated by this story of this woman who was falling, but then it got into the Kennedy stuff and the politics and the conspiracies, and I kind of lost interest. Mm -hmm. And that right there is the seeds of why I would argue these two are such an odd couple, which to me makes Twin Peaks all the more interesting because it's not a case of two visions gelling. It's kind of a case of two visions rubbing up against each other and, and not quite gelling at times. And even this early stage in the pilot where they are way more in sync than they'd probably ever be again, you can still kind of see that. And it, it's kind of fascinating. I agree mm -hmm. with that 100%, Joel. It's, it's funny. I just interviewed um, Michael Nathanson, who was on The Punisher. He played Sam Stein. He talks about how the, the coupling of, of Mark Frost and David Lynch and how it should not work. Like it should <laughs> yeah. be the farthest thing because of their personalities and because of what they're interested in. And they get together and they, they make this beautiful filled out, you know, quirky and it just works. It's just, it's such an interesting dynamic between the two of them. And it just, it just works. So, you know, Brian, we, we watched the first time we watched uh, Twin Peaks and we did this show, Brian had didn't know who the killer was. Nope, you nope. didn't know it was Leland Palmer. Nope. And so now I feel like we have a chance to say, you know, going, looking at the pilot now, are there clues that Leland was the killer in the pilot? No. Well, <laughs> no, it's funny. Um, I had a friend who didn't really watch Twin Peaks too much, but he watched the pilot, and then he just, I think he stopped watching it. But he suspected it was Leland because wow. there is a scene where uh, Harry, this is not in the, this, I mean, it might be in the script, but in the actual pilot we watch, Harry Truman pulls up at the Great Northern and comes in looking for Leland, and Leland is on the phone with Sarah, and he sees her, as sees him, he knows immediately it's about Laura. Hmm. And so you could argue that there is that clue right there at the beginning, that without being told, Leland already knows well, you know that Laura's what? dead. You saying that, John, it's funny, because I watched it again last night to, to prep for today, mm -hmm. and you're right about that. When Harry walks in, and then he he sees it, and Leland's on the phone with Sarah, and Ben walks in and says, Leland, we're ready to close the deal. And he says, Leland, and Harry looks at him and he goes, my daughter's dead. Yes, exactly. But mm -hmm. he, Harry didn't tell him that. <laughs> Harry doesn't say, right. my daughter's, you know, she's about Louis. Right. And then he says, to he goes to Ben, my daughter's dead. Hmm. So that really, you know, th that your friend picked up on that mm -hmm. was pretty good. Yeah, I would say that's probably the only real clue, uh, and I don't know if Lynch and Frost built on that or, yeah. you know, you know where they – how they came to the conclusion that they were going to make it Leland, other than maybe it was like the least likely suspect, you know, that the father would have done it given all the clues that are accumulating over time. I would argue that if you if you just watched the pilot and you never watched any more or, or they never made any more, um, you could make a good case that Leland was the killer. Yeah. Interesting. Correct. And so here's my my input on this. So you have like Sarah Palmer, she you know, she's calling for her her daughter Laura and she can't find her, so she calls Betty Briggs and then she's thinking about it, Sarah, and she says, "You know, I'm wondering if she might have gone out with Leland. He had an early meeting." And so Sarah mm. Sarah doesn't know even really if Leland even came home that night cuz she all she knows is he had an early, early meeting. meeting. So does Leland even have an alibi? His alibi would have been uh he was having a meeting with the Norwegians. Yeah, but he was out early, so it was that's so what I guess I'm getting at is like we don't even know if he ever came home. So oh yeah, yeah, make a point. He was planning something for that night, so I'm sure he drugged her. Yes. Yeah. You're right. Though. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He totally like I. Yeah. I don't think he would have any worry about her being in the way or right. or mm -hmm. giving a different account or anything. Is my guess. Yeah. Drink some milk. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No. Yeah. I mean that makes sense. If we're World thinking in world. world, out of world. As I mentioned, I think before we recorded, in the USC talks that they did, where they had the cast and the crew come and talk to everybody, Mark Frost says that they did not have a killer in the pilot. They came up with it right after. But the way that he's always phrased it in like 
I'm talking like interviews back in 1992 is he always says like the killer revealed himself to us or we discovered who the killer was. Like, it's not like we just sat down and we're like, you know, hmm, who should the killer be? What if it was this? It was more like, who is the killer? There is a killer and like teased it out of the material that they'd already written. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was a subconscious right. thing they kind of knew or something. So I do think, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that can lead you to identify Leland as a killer, or at least in retrospect, say, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, and I mean, the biggest moment is when she's sitting there with the sheriff and then she hears the noise and the music kind of stinger kicks in a little bit. And it's like, who's upstairs? And he says, your husband. And then it's like there's a moment and then she like calms down. But it's like already right there. They're kind of setting up this idea that he is the ominous, mysterious presence in this house. Mm-hmm. And and you really do get a sense like there's just something dark about the house. And I think the ceiling fan is really the seed of that. Like, yeah, yeah she was killed out in the woods. But, you know, as, as I've sort of said before in my analysis of it, like the scene of the crime is the home because that's where the abuse happened. And that's what kind of led to her death. It's funny that you say that about that scene, because that scene to me was interesting when I rewatched it, because her her voice changes when she even says it. Now, I know she's drugged, but it's Grace Zabraski is perfect. This her nuances of her of her tone and how she says things. But especially that scene, because she literally comes awake at that point, too. She says, who's up? And her voice lowers and she's like, who's upstairs? You know, Mm -hmm. and it's like it's one of my men and your husband. And then she kind of, it, it, for a second, she pauses and then she lays back and she does the whole, you know, okay. Mm-hmm. And then they go up to the scene with Hawk and the diary, which I think is very interesting too, that that's the direct yeah. scene after that one. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, that was another clue, I think, in some ways. Lily kind yeah. of is freaked out about the diary. Like, do you have to take mm-hmm. that diary? Yes, like, yeah. it might. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. That's a great clue. That might tell that I'm subconscious, kind of write it. And then went back like psychoanalysts and we're like, what were we really thinking? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. How do we look at the pilot now that we've seen season three? You know, the interesting thing is, is that Lynch said when he was at that uh, television critics presentation in January of 2017, when they finally announced that we were going to see Twin Peaks, uh, the date, you know, was going to be May 21st. Somebody asked him and he said, you need to see the pilot and you need to see Firewalk with me. I think yeah. those were the two things he mentioned now, again as i mentioned earlier i think he thinks of the pilot as a feature film that he went off and made and yeah. that that was a significant amount of work and effort on his part and perhaps less so when he was working on the series for hour-long episodes but he does say that he does say that the pilot is is critical so uh, it's funny so in his mind that anybody could say, never have any clue important. what's going on if they didn't see the finale that's right. true too uh, exactly <laughs> yeah, absolutely way more than the pilot yeah. in a way well if i could interject for a minute to go on what john was saying about the the pilot and then fire walk with me and it's funny watching watching the pilot and then and after watching season three there's something interesting, and, and and I've heard people talk about this, and I and I haven't delved in it enough to like even read something about it. But it almost seems to me, and Ben and Brian and I have talked about this, the Cooper that comes to the town in the pilot has a darkness about him in season mm-hmm. two. But if you go strictly on the pilot, it almost seems like that's the good Cooper to the other half of Mister C. Mm-hmm. That he's the one because when he talks about the trees and. I'm going to have to ask, you know, what are these trees? And there's, I've never seen so many trees. And then the moment with Harry in the, in the, when they're um, with the mayor and he talks about what kind of rabbit, oh, snowshoe rabbit, snowshoe rabbit. And it's like this very innocent little boy kind of asking questions and finding out it's so essentially innocent and good. So it almost seems like he was meant to go there to to go into the the red room or the black lodge not that we know that yet from the pilot but it, it's it seems like that cooper is the other half of the dark lothario cooper it seems like it's, it goes it all ties back like if you're going to go infinity symbol then it all ties back to the pilot again i think you know lynch loved that character of cooper and i think he probably really fell in love with that character of cooper when he was making the pilot i really believe that when frost and lynch went back to make season three well, we know this really that you know Cooper was the essential element of what they were going to explore the psychology of Cooper Frost says it was the journey of Cooper home again they wanted to get into who Cooper was a little more and, and I think for Lynch maybe he went back and looked at how was Cooper portrayed and established in the pilot and, and what do I 
build off of from that. So I would say in that respect, the pilot really does um, influence the season three quite a bit in terms of how Cooper is presented through Lynch's direction. And JC, I almost can get a, a little feel of Dougie Cooper in the pilot. He is so innocent. Yeah. And he's never had chocolate cake before. And then all of a sudden he's never seen trees before. before. Like he's like a kid and he's just enjoying this atmosphere around him. And yeah, I can kind of see that. You know, it's weird. It's almost as if uh, Cooper was just created at that moment, as if he, you know, you're absolutely right. He doesn't recognize some of these things. And I wonder if that was a cue to Lynch or Frost or both of them, you know, why was Cooper behaving that way? It was almost as if he just sort of appeared in the world at that moment. Maybe if we look at season three, there's clues to say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Cooper just popped into existence to go explore Twin Peaks. I wanted to offer a little counterpoint because I think that's all true, but Cooper has an edge in the pilot that I think he loses mm-hmm. in the first season to a certain extent. Like, oh, I agree with very that. Sarcastic I agree. with Bobby, and he, and with Truman at first, he's like, he when Truman like totally defers and is like, hey, we're just happy to hear you. He firm. So it's like an interesting balance. It's like kind of in some ways the optimal version of Cooper maybe is like Lynch sees him where there is like a little bit of a balance there almost because he has that authority and he's not afraid to use it, but he's also got, you know, this sort of innocent gee whiz sizer or or at least receptive side. Um, But then the other thing is too, like his involvement with the crime and with investigating it, it's not like from like sort of a compassionate, like, oh, this is terrible. He's like excited. Like he's, he's like thrilled. He He like finds the letter (laughs) under the fingernail. It's like, oh, this is great. Like Like that's his whole angle coming at this. So I don't know. That's interesting too. It's like they, they kind of give him other sides to that later like in the episode three when he lifts laura's hand up on uh, on the table and then there was a line that they cut from the script where he's like oh it makes me so angry that this happened etc cetera, etc cetera. but like it seems like in the pilot like he's the thrill of mystery yeah you know versus like the assessing the tragedy of it or whatever. I gotta say that, you know, Pete's going fishing and we see season three <laughs> and he actually does get to go fishing and there is no uh, Laura Palmer's body. That still haunts me to some degree that we have at least uh, season uh, three kind of ends in 17 there with Laura not dying. Does it change how you view the pilot in some way? <sighs> me? I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, not me. Not me, because he's in the, he's still stuck in the red room, so it that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. I would tend to agree with that too. Yeah, I um I don't know if you guys had a chance to read anything I wrote, but I really believe that this alternate timeline may not have happened. That this is yeah. more Cooper's wish fulfillment yeah. than it is yeah. uh, what really happened. So with that, you feel like the final dossier is sort of uh, like almost in contradiction with the show. The final dossier is the way Mark Frost perceives that, that it ended. Yeah. I don't I would think, say the same with it, what it, he says about Judy it, as well. It's certainly not what Lynch thinks. Lynch had right. nothing to do with the final dossier. So we know that. I and mean, that's, a, that's a fact. And so right. this is what Frost felt. He wanted to tie some things up and he wanted to to do it and 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 he supplied that for us but i think twin peaks as we see it on screen is still very much an open text and is mm-hmm. not closed if we choose to to want to look for that closure we can go to that book if uh we choose to want to continue to ponder uh the mysteries of it that we we then we look at the last we scene. just the last scene of, we just re- of Laura again whispering into Cooper's ear. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Twin Peaks is, is beautiful in that it can it can give you the end you want, or it can you know it it can be open Drag and and contradictory. And John, I want to plug Blue Rose Magazine, the most recent issue, number five. You have a whole article that kind of gets into that, and so I definitely would recommend people check out that uh, issue. Definitely. Yeah, I have to renew my Thanks. subscription now. Talking with John on here, I feel guilty, <laughs> so I have to do it right now. Oh. Oh, Scott will be so happy. I have one, two, three, and four. I need to get back on five. I have written a lot about season three, and there's a lot to pull apart there. Yes, there is. (laughs) So I wanted to say something about the the different – like watching the pilot after season three. Like to me, the thing that most jumps out is just like how radically Twin Peaks kind of changed. I mean, to go back, virtually every scene has to do with this local girl being murdered. Like I think – Maybe, maybe there's like two or three scenes that aren't intimately related to that. And I'm not even sure off the top of my head what those are. 
you know, but like literally every scene in the pilot has to do with that. It's, it's all within the confines of the town. It's about these relationships and finding out how these people exist in relation to one another. And then to sort of fast forward to that and go not even to the end of season three, but just like, look at the season three premiere. I mean, what a radical difference that is. Like you're in Peaks, you're in New York, you're in South Dakota, you're with all these scattered characters. There's this cosmic sense of something going on, you know? So it's just interesting that the show was able to just evolve and evolve and evolve to the point where it could be something like that and still be rooted in this pilot, which, you know, the pilot setting up one type of story and it ends up kind of becoming something else through all of seasons one and two was sticking to the town. And I think once that's, it makes the pilot feel like um, it belongs almost to another world in a way. So I think we're running out of time. So I don't know if, if you guys have any, any closing things you want to share about the pilot before we go. Hey, I, I had one quick thing I wanted to add. It, we talked about the script and how it changed uh, when they went to film. And I think one of the most striking changes is the fact that Dr. Jacoby does not appear in the original script to the pilot. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet the scene with the hand digging up the necklace is how the, the scripted pilot and the televised pilot. And um, so we have this sort of striking image that this necklace that uh, James and Donna hid is, has been found by a mysterious stranger. We we all know later in season one it was dr jacoby who found it but dr jacoby is not in that script and so that's evidence that lynch and frost did not know who was digging up the necklace and that means i think that there was a lot they didn't know um we kind of right. established that and it really goes without saying but as they were scripting this uh they had a lot of things that they figure it out later when we have to we don't have to figure it out right now right now all we need to do is open all these stories up it's fascinating i think in that respect to realize that they were just sort of letting loose and seeing what was going to happen themselves yeah mm. JC? Well, thank you for having me, first of all, because it has been fascinating to talk to Joel and John. So it's kind of like a dream because, John, you're like my theory guru. And I know John Bernardi's and everybody at 25 Years Later. So thank you, sir. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, thinking about it, watching it and knowing how everything progressed in two and Fire Walk With Me and then season three, going back, I think Lynch hit the nail on the head with showing that infinity symbol. I'm going to go back to that. Because if you really look at that infinity symbol and you watch season three and you see the ending and then you look and you immediately watch the pilot afterwards, it's 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 like and it goes again and you find new things to think about and you find new, it's just it's and that's Twin Peaks. I mean, we're still talking about it. We're probably going to be talking about it for a long time. We're going to probably be talking about things we've seen and season three. We're going to be talking about, you know, what did this really mean and the box and the mother and you know, such and such. So like I said earlier, that for me, the pilot and I, and I stand by John and, and Joel in this, it's, it's freestanding. I mean, it's, it could be watched by anybody. I I've turned a couple of my coworkers onto it. And just, just yesterday, one of my coworkers, the youngest comes past me and goes, who killed Laura Palmer? And I said, I'm not telling you, you got to watch it, <laughs> you know, but he had watched the pilot too. So it was kind of like, it's still to this day, 2018, you know, still holds up and it's still brilliant. And it's just, I can't say enough about the pilot. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, thank you guys for having me on. It was great talking to all of you guys. And I'm going to just echo the same thing that both of you said. This unusual way that the pilot kind of stands, it stands at the opening of all these possibilities. And so in a way, it seems like it may lack a lot of the things that Twin Peaks gathers later on. But on the other hand, it also has all these openings that would naturally have to become closed as Twin Peaks went along and made certain choices of where it wanted to go. And to me, you can still kind of glimpse these endless possibilities when you watch the pilot. And I think that after you've seen it a million times and you've watched the show, that's still kind of the most fun thing to play with in a way is this idea of like, where could we go next? And one other thing I wanted to say, and maybe you can throw it back because I meant to mention this when you're talking about Donna and James at the sheriff's station and Doc Award coming in. If you look at him in that scene, like his hair is black, blackish brown. And I'm wondering if they dyed his hair because they like if that was the first scene they shot with Doc Hayward and they were like, you know, he's the father of a teenager. He's got to look younger than 65 or whatever he actually was. And then they were like, ah, mm-hmm. that's no good. 
Like I don't know if that's true, but that's my like uh, that's my head cannon. <laughs> can you let people know how they can follow you? Maybe you could start with John. Uh, sure. Uh, the easiest way to follow me is on Twitter at John J O H N Whip W I P. Um, I also have my blog, which I've not been keeping up with, uh, which is above the store blogspot.com, and you can see some of the old stuff from Wrapped in Plastic that I've put up there. You could follow me on Twitter. I'm at jchotch726. could also find me at 25 Years Later. Just click on my name, and you'll see all the uh, theories I wrote and articles, interviews. I've been following The Alienist besides Twin Peaks, which is a great show, too. So check it out. You can follow me on at Lost in the Movies on Twitter, and lostinthemovies.com gathers all my work, and uh, you can also support the work on patreon.com, patreon.com slash lost in the movies you can join ben on that front <laughs> for only a dollar a month a dollar i'll buy That's that right. for a dollar well thank you so much i think this has been a great first uh, rewatch yes it's been a lot of fun thank you all for coming on the show thanks thank you thank you happy 150 150 wow we're still doing this you know i i, I always think of myself wow i can't believe brian is still doing this with me i always thought it was like if i can get him to watch the the first two seasons that would be great and yet you stuck around and now it's become an obsession just not as hardcore as you Aww. but still twin peaks and david lynch and all that stuff has become like an a, almost in a daily recurrence i think of a quote i think of a character i think of a movie my obsession has grown over the years because of you so we came up with this idea to do a community rewatch the long 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 term goal will happen over years and years <laughs> well this we'll, is how i'm going to keep brian to do we're, we're going to somehow do a community rewatch of all season one all season two i'm sure we'll do firewalk with me which will be eight hours and then we're going to do the return. Yes. But here's the thing is, I mean, this might be makes two people uh, disappointed. We're not doing this every week. I know. So I, as of right now, we're going to do this once a month. So if you can start doing the math. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take us like seven months to get through the first season. You're so. actually going to physically hear our voices age. <laughs> You know, I don't want to go into it too much, but 25 Years Later site is has an article that they're going to have up behind the scenes of this show. So if you want to know more about how we put this community rewatch show together, I would go check out 25 Years Later site and they have an interview with us. This is the first show. This is the community rewatch. Oh, it was a doozy. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. And you get to hear three different perspectives and we'll bring more people in. Before we wrap this thing up, our 150th episode finally We've made it to Spotify. Woo! Didn't I give up on this a couple weeks ago? So I think I just gave. I was yeah. like, forget about it, Brian. I never gave up hope. Oh. I just forgot about it. <laughs> like I, I, it slipped my mind. But we got an email confirming, and I actually went on Spotify, and there we are. That's really exciting. And to be honest, Brian, that's not something – I mean, it's not always easy to get on Spotify. So, I mean, that gives – I'm pretty impressed that that happened. Yeah. The, okay, so Spotify just started allowing podcasts to go onto their platform last year. It's hard in the sense that it's not like iTunes. You submit a link, you're up. It's like you have to send them your stuff, and they review it. And it took months. So we're there. I don't know how it works. They noticed that we were in top the, notch. We're, they noticed we were the top ten podcast in TV and film for 2017. That's what it was. It <laughs> got what, us in. It's like, wow, you guys are that good. And the uh, $50 I, sl I slipped uh, in there. I knew there too. was something else. <laughs> That's not true. No, I don't. <laughs> anyway, we're on Spotify. So please follow us on that. Hey, you can listen to us while you're you're gaming on PS4 or you're on Xbox or if you if you use Spotify as your main place to listen to music, well, guess what? We're there too. So there's no other Twin Peaks podcast on there wow. right now. So that's really cool. Uh, iTunes, we're kicking ass. Give us those five stars. Yes. And the, review us. Yeah. The one thing Spotify doesn't have is any of that. They, Interesting. They you can't review. You, you can't give stars? Nope. There's nothing. I looked. Well, that's coming, maybe. Yeah. Because like I said, we're in the ground floor of the podcast people on Spotify. Share us on Spotify, but on iTunes, give us that five-star review. A nice little comment would be great. Also, we're on Stitcher. You can find us on that. We're also on Google Play. We're on YouTube. You can follow us on YouTube. You leave comments on there. We all we love hearing you 
uh, all the YouTube people. And drop us an email at TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com. Facebook, we're kicking butt. And uh, Twitter, we've been having a lot of fun on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Great community there. Thank you, everybody. And we'll be back next week with another show. It won't be a community rewatch, but I'm sure it'll be another great show. It's going to be a great one. You know, I've seen these in pictures, but this is an actual gazebo right here in your city square. This is beautiful. You bet. You know, I'm from Philadelphia. And a thing like... Cooper? Cooper, you're going to make us late for that meeting. This is a bear carved from Douglas fir. Yes, it is. Take, for instance, these hedges. Cooper. These are very meticulously made. Cooper, old buddy. brand new book, Twin Peaks Unwrapped. The book, me and my co-host Ben Durant wrote this last year and is now finally out at bluerosebag.com. This book contains over 100 interviews with cast and crew, community commentary, and of course, us. For example, here are some of the fine folks you'll find in this wonderful book. Krista Bell, Charlotte Stewart, David Patrick Kelly, Jim Belushi, John Neff, Scott Frost, Cheryl Lee, Matthew Lillard, and the one, the only, Kyle McLaughlin. So get your copy today at bluerosemag.com.